0: the blunt post with vic good morning happy monday and welcome to the blunt post with vic i am your host vic gerami the editor and publisher of the blunt post the blunt post with vic is a program that covers national regional and local headline news offers analysis and commentary and i interview members of congress local elected officials and other high-profile public figures After today's Let's Get Blunt, my guest is best-selling author of Malibu Burning and his new book, Roos, Lying the American Dream from Hollywood to Wall Street, Robert Kerbeck. So stay tuned. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt.
1: Let's get blunt.
0: Well, it's time to get blunt. So let's get blunt about Congressman Madison Calthorne, who's been in the news lately, as you know. Uh, for various reasons, but let's go back and You know discuss how much he reminds me of Trump uh, a man who has famously said that if he stood on Fifth Avenue with a gun and shot people that people would still vote for him or support him and whatnot. I'm paraphrasing, but he said something along those lines, which sort of sadly is, is true for some people because apparently there's nothing that President Trump can do for some people to just really uh, look at it objectively and say well this man is a is a corrupt you know selfish businessman who used the White House for his own personal gain but now we have uh, congressman Cal Thorne who kind of reminds me of Trump uh, so much of what he's claimed through the years even from the time before he was a congressman um, Uh, has come out to be lies. Um, Claims about his uh, wanting to be in the Navy when he was already rejected um, and so many other things we've had. There was a petition by 150 of his college buddies um, and not just buddies, but just people who went to college with him talking about uh, his sexual uh, predatory behavior and such. He has been caught with a gun that he's taken to the airport twice. He has had his driver's license suspended. Um, I mean, it goes on and on and on. And yet, uh, you know, some people in North Carolina um, still support him. The hypocrisy about all of this is that had he been a Democrat, uh, the Republicans would have... Uh, wanted him recalled and, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff. This would have been sort of on Fox News 24-7. And yet you still have people from the right supporting him no matter what, including the the fact that he's made racist remarks and he's supported the insurrection, an attack on our government and our nation, um, supports President Trump, although, you know, we... It's clear, I mean, the only president that's been impeached twice in history. Which brings me to the sort of the biggest hypocrisy of it all. Now, Congressman Calthorne has made some questionable and offensive comments about the LGBTQ community. And yet we are seeing more and more um, sort of images and footage, whatnot, of him in again questionable situations now I I don't care if he's gay or straight or bi or whatever or if he likes to do drag or cross-dress it's none of my business and it shouldn't be anyone else's and it doesn't uh, it shouldn't affect his um, work as a uh, congressman but uh, the hypocrisy comes when you know someone says something from a podium under the spotlights and then they do something completely different I also don't think that anyone should be outed that's a very personal decision and it's nobody's business if someone wants to live in the closet for their entire life it's their decision and their business and it should be respected unless they are a high-profile public figure like the congressman who um, goes against the queer community the LGBTQ community Uh, And then we see these videos of him engaged with um, uh, sexual provocative and sexual nature um, acts, if you will, uh, with um, someone who works with him, or for him, I should say, um, and uh, others that we haven't really cleared as to what the nature is. But the bottom line is, these are the types of videos that if a congressman who was a a Democrat had made and it'd been leaked, uh, it would have been a much bigger deal. But a lot of the right wing Republicans, they just, you know, they, they just want to support him no matter what, because uh, he preaches to their narrative. Um, so it's uh, it's unfortunate. Um, we'll see what happens there. There's obviously an ethics uh, investigation on him. In fact, a lot of his colleagues have Come out against him, uh, which is a which is a first, and I think part of that is the fact that he made comments um, about having been invited to orgies and uh, been offered cocaine and such, and a lot of Republicans turned against him because he thought you know they thought that he was uh, sort of crossing a line, etc. We don't know how much of that is true or not; it remains to be seen. But uh, this is a very sort of familiar territory of. Uh, an elected official who just breaks rules and breaks laws and is just really belligerent and yet uh, he still gets quite a lot of support so let's just um, see what happens and uh, let's uh, continue to be blunt let's get blunt
1: the blunt post with vic
0: robert kerbeck is the founder of the malibu Writer circle is also the best-selling author of Malibu Burning, the real story behind LA's most devastating wildfire. Robert's new book, Roots Lying the American Dream from Hollywood to Wall Street, is an insider's look at the billions corporations spend every year spying on each other, often using unethical and illegal means. Good morning, Robert. Thank you for being on the Blunt Post with Vic this morning. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, you're riding high with your with your book, which is "Ruse," uh, "Ruse Lying Lying the American Dream from Hollywood to Wall Street," which is a very clever name instead of living but lying. Um, I read some great reviews about it, um, you know, in, in major publications. So congratulations. Well, thank you, thank you. My
2: I think my favorite publication was the Armenian Weekly.
0: Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's fantastic. And we'll talk about that too, your, your Armenian roots. Um, but first I want to talk about like the book and what inspired it. Cause it's really, it, it's just really fascinating. Uh, you know, you were just successful. Uh, you are the successful actor who decided to sort of uh, explore this whole other side career of sort of being a quote unquote spy Mm. Uh, for corporations to get info and give them a uh, you know uh, i don't know give them a lead or give them a um, way into the competition etc so i'm going to stop there and let you really talk about uh you know the genesis of this book and and how you got into what you were doing that inspired this book
2: sure sure well uh my hometown is philadelphia and um my family is um the Kerbeck family is very well known in the automobile business. Um, my great-grandfather Garabed Kerbekian came over from um, Arab gear in um, you know, what was uh, you know, the Ottoman Empire. And um, he escaped um, one of the early massacres and came to America and sold horse carriages in Philadelphia before cars were invented. And he was a very smart man. He saw the writing on the wall and so he switched to selling cars. And then my grandfather took over that business, then my father took over that business, and I was expected to take over that business. And one of the reasons he dropped the IAN is because, of course, um, we know Armenians have been subject to a lot of uh, discrimination and prejudice. And so especially in those early days in Philadelphia, he felt like his business would have a better chance of succeeding if it was just Kerbeck which kind of had a german sound and back then in the late 1800s early 1900s philadelphia was very german and, and for, so and,
0: uh, sorry to cut you off but i just want yeah. to make sure people understand what we're talking about uh armenian last names uh, almost always have an ending of ian or yan so that's what robert's talking about uh the ian being dropped uh uh in his family for his last name so uh and mine was also mine wasn't dropped intentionally it was a uh, a butcher shop, but whole other story. So go ahead, continue, please. <laughs>
2: well, we we can hear that one too because you know cars and butcher shops. There's a lot of interesting gossip that goes on in those two places, right? right. Um, so yeah, so I was expected to take over the dealership, and um, when I graduated college, um, I went to the University of Pennsylvania, and I'd gotten involved in the theater there, and I just kind of fell in love with acting. Um, but I didn't know anybody that had ever been an actor or tried to be an actor. And so when I graduated college, I went to work at the dealership and, uh, I just found it wasn't for me, um, you know, kind of car sales. There's some, you know, trickery that goes in, goes on with that. And, and it just didn't feel right for me. So I finally moved to New York to become an actor. And of course, you know, actors need survival jobs. They need a day job to pay the bills while they're trying to get work. And who stumbles into a job as a corporate spy, but that's exactly what happened. Uh, a buddy of mine had this job. He was very mysterious about it. He kind of wouldn't tell me what it was. And I, I said, look, I need a job. You know, Please, can you help me out? Can you recommend me? So he recommend, recommended me. And I went and I met with this woman who, whose firm it was. And she lived on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And she had this luxurious apartment in this doorman building. And as soon as I walked into the apartment, you know, everything was white and fancy and spotless. I said, this woman is making a lot of money. And um, so we do this interview. She never says anything about what the job is, you know, never asks for a resume. Um, It was all very kind of strange. And I left thinking I hadn't gotten the job. And then my buddy called me and said, "Uh, no, she's hired you um, because she hires everyone because no one is able to do this job. It's just too difficult. And I went and started training the next day, and then I very quickly began to see that we were um, creating uh, personas and characters to try to get people at major corporations to tell us stuff that they should not tell us. Wow! And that was the that was the beginning of my apprenticeship as a corporate spy.
0: I, I love that there was an actual training for it. You know, that, that <laughs> it was, <laughs> it's like you know, it just it, it's just fascinating. Um, And how long did you do that for?
2: Uh, You know, I did that for many years. For the first years, it was always kind of in the background of my acting. You know, I was only doing this to pay the bills. I wasn't doing this to make a lot of money. Most of the years we were getting $8 an hour, which, of course, is kind of hysterical now that we were taking so much risk and finding out such incredible secrets about corporations um, and we were doing it all for $8 an hour, but you know, yeah. we were, it was just to support our, 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 our love of the arts. Right. Um, and then at a certain point, you know, I worked a lot as an actor in Los Angeles and I, I killed George Clooney on a TV show called sisters. Cause he had to go to this other show you never oh, heard yeah. of called, oh, yeah. called ER. Um, and, you know, worked with a lot of really, really, uh, well-known people and had major roles. Um, and I did a number of pilots, um, but the pilot, I think I did four pilots and none of them got picked up and went to a series. And for anybody who's listening that knows anything about acting is you really need a TV series to kind of to make it and get established uh, and make any real money to, you know, to be able to support yourself. And so at a certain point when my acting career waned, I kind of went deeper into the world of corporate corporate espionage to the point um, there was one moment where um, the authorities thought that me and my buddy uh, were the world's most famous hacker at the time. They thought we were this this hacker that every organization in the world was trying to catch. Oh
0: wow! And we were just
2: we were just actors with the gift of gab. <laughs> but it was still quite scary in that moment in time.
0: Wow! This is the blunt post with Vic on KPFK ninety point seven FM. I am your host Vic Giarami, and you are listening to my interview with bestselling author Robert Kerbeck. So why did you like, why now? Why did you write the, uh, the book? I mean, of course, it's a silly question. So, of course, if you do something that sort of extraordinary and exceptional, of course, you're you're going to want to write it because everyone wants to know how it was. But um, like what was what got you to finally like actually write it down and make it a book?
2: Sure. So, you know, um, I, you know, in the book, in Ruse, I go on this journey, you know, and, you know, you see, I had all these different careers and I had, you know, very high moments and then very low moments. And then at one of the lowest moments, I um, start writing uh, again, which, you know, kind of is what I started doing in the beginning. I was an English major in college and when I fell in love with acting and kind of put that on the back burner. And then all of a sudden, many, many years later, I circled back and I started writing and I started getting essays published in magazines and newspapers and, you know, winning some awards. And I always knew corporate spying was fascinating. And uh, one day I wrote something and I read it at a famous famous writers conference and people flipped out. And they just said, nobody's ever written a book about corporate spying. We want to know about this world. Um, you've got to write this book. And so then I did a little little bit of legwork in terms of researching the statute of limitations for any potential you know crimes or infractions i'd committed and right. i found that by the time the book would be published the statute of limitations had passed and so that's why i'm able to, to to publish the book now
0: that's an interesting um factor that i didn't even think about uh of course you know that would be a major thing so How uh, how has the response been? I mean, of course, I've read response from from press and critics and all of that, which is great. But uh, just from just your average person, what sort of feedback are you getting?
2: (laughs) Well, I think the average person just cannot believe that this goes on. And when I say goes on, goes on every day. Um, You know, we all know the Russians spy on the Chinese and the Chinese spy on us. But what most people don't realize is major American corporations are hiring spies every day to spy on each other um, because they all want to know what's going on, uh, what the plans are of companies. You know, uh, you know, are they expanding? Are they contracting? What are the new products? You know, what are the timelines? Who the top people are at firms? What those people are paid all of that information basically i describe it you know as imagine in the sports world if you could have your opponent's playbook right and that's what major corporations would hire someone like me to do is get the playbook on their main rivals so that they can you know they can beat them
0: let me ask you this are you um are you able to tell me uh like couple of like your top examples of bits of information that you gathered that was sort of explosive
2: sure well you know i mean a lot of times uh you know i could just tell you some interesting stories. So Steve jobs, for example, Mm -hmm. he would not allow his designers to be listed in the Apple directory because he did not want anybody to know who those people were because he didn't want any of his rival companies to poach them, right. To come in and recruit them away, to steal them away. And think about that. If you were able to, um, you know, have contact with the, uh, designer of the iPad in the early days of the iPad and you could take that person away, right? What a huge thing that would be. And so that was the kind of information that we were being tasked to find out uh, with was, you know, who were the individuals, the rock stars at major corporations that were creating entirely new products, creating, you know, um, platforms and visions of things that had never existed before because again, if you were able to get that person to come to your team, it, you know it was just such a game changer. And, and you know, right. and again, sometimes people—it's it, a little hard to understand—but this information to corporations could be worth forget about millions of dollars, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, and on occasion even billions of dollars.
0: Absolutely, look at like Zoom or Twitter yeah. or you know, just name it. Any one of those um, makes sense. That's it's 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 a lot of like interesting information that sort of makes you think about corporations, well, makes you think even more about corporations and how sort of dirty can be correct, um, the competition and the the environment of it all. This is the Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jarami. And you're listening to my interview with best selling author Robert Kerbeck what's um what's sort of like on your current agenda with the with the book are you touring it are you doing events and you know what's happening yes. with it yeah so
2: i i just came back from an east coast book tour um which was wonderful and um and as a result um and of course you know we're just coming out of covid so uh, the you know, the book tours, the in-person book tours are just kind of getting going again. Mm-hmm. So when the book first released, uh, which was the end of February, I did a bunch of virtual events. Mm-hmm. And one of the virtual events, I was in conversation with former CIA uh, agent and spy Valerie Plame.
0: Yeah. And
2: again, your, your audience may remember Valerie um, is the most famous CIA agent ever outed by her own government. Um, mm-hmm. And she was outed by um individuals in the Bush administration to get back at her husband, you know, you know, with the run-up to the Iraq war. And so Valerie um, and I did this virtual event. Uh Valerie was wonderful and um, amazing. And then people saw that virtual event and they've asked us now to headline a book festival this summer in Woodstock, Vermont, uh, called Bookstock. And we're going to be doing an event together called In From the Cold. Where we talk about political spying and corporate spying and the intersection of the two.
0: Oh, that's great! Yeah, having Valerie, you know, on your side—that's such a—that's such a great thing. That's a yeah. good match. Well, she
2: really, uh, you know, we, uh, you know the the uh, the people that run Bookstock—they wanted Valerie playing, not Robert Kerbeck, But I'm happy to, to that Valerie's bringing me along.
0: That's awesome, and and there's a TV series in development, correct?
2: Yes. Yes. So um, again, you know, as, as you can imagine, this is a world that's largely unknown. It's kind of a funny world because you know, anytime you have spies and and people pretending that they're someone that they're not, um, you know, we used to do accents and create all these insane characters um, to get corporations to give us information because. You know, you would think that the crazier a story was or the crazier a ploy was to get information that the less believable it would be. And it was the exact opposite. The crazier the story was, the more people were like, they would just believe it because it was just too crazy to make it up. And then they would tell you things that they, you know, that they shouldn't be telling you. And so um, uh, this, uh, you know, major Los Angeles production company with many shows on air, uh, they read the book. They loved the book. And so, you know, we have a showrunner attached um, and we just did our first presentation for the studio uh, for the pilot. They loved it. And now we're um, doing, putting the whole first season together.
0: Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah. You're pretty far along.
2: Yeah. I think it's going to be fun because, you know, one of the things I, when I did, when I wrote Ruse was I wanted to write a book that's a page turner and I wanted to write a book that's fun and I've been really grateful that a lot of the reviews, even though the book is nonfiction and it's a true story, they've really described it, that it reads like a spy novel. And it really, it's really suspenseful because you never know what's going to happen. And, you know, when the authorities are going to come knocking on my door and when my ploy is going to fall apart. And so, um, and I think that was something that was important to me when I wrote it, because, you know, we were going through COVID. Um, It's been such a difficult time. You know, we've all been shut up. And, I wanted to write something that was fun. I wanted to write something that was fun for people to read and that's what I also hope with the TV series that the TV series is going to have a fun energy to it.
0: Yeah, even the even the name is really fun and catchy. Yeah. Where yeah. can people uh, purchase it?
2: Yeah, so you know, you can go to my website uh, which is, you know, robertkerbeck.com and um, you know, there's the proverbial buy now button and if you click on that, it, all the places you can buy Ruse will come up. Um, I always encourage people to buy books from your local bookstore, because if you don't buy it from your local bookstore, the local bookstore is not going to be there very long. Um, But you can also buy it from, you know, Amazon and Barnes and Noble and, you know, anywhere, anywhere you want, you can buy the book. There's an audio book, which I narrate. And I hope people enjoy that because, you know, it's my story.
0: Fantastic. And that's RobertKerbeck.com. That's K-E-R-B-E-C-K. Uh, for Kerbek. Before we go, Robert, um, I know that you're, is it uh, accurate to say you're half Armenian on your dad's side? I'm one quarter Armenian. Uh, My father was half Armenian. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But it's a very,
2: it's a very powerful quarter.
0: (laughs) uh, Yeah. And, and so, uh, you know, I know that you're very proud of that. Um, And uh, have you ever been to Armenia?
2: I haven't been to Armenia, but I've been uh, planning a trip and uh, my brother and I are going to go. Um, and I've been working on my Armenian. Um, and as you know, it's not an easy language. No, uh, not. Very challenging. And I'm and I've been learning uh, conversational Armenian. And now I've crossed over to the really hard part, which is learning the alphabet. Right. Um, right. And so I can recognize signs when we're there. And uh, boy, that that's that is hard. You know, it's like going back. You know. I have these little notebooks where I'm drawing the letters, you know, you know, you'd like a first grader would do and a kindergartner would do. Uh, well, so you're
0: it's... That's, that's important.
2: <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I appreciate Fantastic. it. Thank, well, you know.
0: I I've been to Armenia many times. It's, it's just a dream. Uh, it's such uh, an yeah. incredible experience. I can't wait for you to go and, uh, you know, experience it for yourself. And, um, uh, yeah, is there any, anything you'd like to add? Maybe a question I didn't ask that I should have?
2: No, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm just grateful that uh, I'm here with you. I'm grateful uh, the Armenian community has been so supportive. You know, they were really supportive. My first, my, my previous book, Malibu Burning. Uh, was about the terrible uh, Woolsey fire. Um, Some people call it the Malibu fire that burned down half of Malibu in
1: 2018.
2: Um, And very sad story. Um, uh, Two of the people that died in that fire was an Armenian man. Uh, He died trying to rescue his mother and they were burned uh, in their car. And that's a whole chapter in Malibu burning. and um, and I've been I've become very close with his widow, uh, who's been very supportive of the process of me writing about, you know, the worst day of her life. Um, but she wanted the story told that was important to her to honor Anthony, uh, Anthony Baclion. Um So um, so yeah, so it's you know it's it's really gratifying um, that people put a lot of trust in me. Um, and um, and are enjoying what I'm doing, you know, with the written word.
0: That's fantastic. Congrats on on your successes, and uh, thank you for uh, being on the show.
2: Oh well, thanks for having me, Vic. I really appreciate
0: it. All right, thanks, Robert. That was my interview with Robert Kerbeck, uh, whose uh, second book is just as successful as the first one. He's a best-selling author. Uh, of Malibu Burning and his new book, Ruse, Lying the American Dream from Hollywood to Wall Street. Robert, thank you very much for being on The Blunt Post with Vic. Uh, good luck to you, although you don't need it.
1: The Blunt Post with Vic.
0: Council member Monica Rodriguez is the third Latina in the city's history to serve on the Los Angeles City Council District 7 since 2017. Her district encompasses north, central, and northeast parts of the San Fernando Valley. She has the endorsement of dozens of organizations, elected officials, and community leaders, including Unite Here Local 11, United Farm Workers, Planned Parenthood, and the Armenian Council of America. Council Member Rodriguez, thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic this morning. How are you today?
1: I'm doing good. Thank you so much for having me.
0: It's a pleasure. There's so much going on. We keep thinking that we are transitioning out of COVID, but then another strain comes out. But nonetheless, we're trying to be in in the solution, uh, pick up the pieces and sort of come out of this epidemic and maybe uh, would have to settle with an endemic. What is your perspective on where we are as Los Angeles as a city, but as well as your own district in terms of sort of just the general perspective on where we are as a city and what's happening.
1: Well, of course we continue to evolve in what our our position is. Um, you know, we recognize that we aren't completely out of the woods yet. In fact, uh, e- even if I just take my own team as an example, my staff, uh, how COVID has a, has continued to affect uh, my my staff and and our ability to continue to seamlessly provide. Uh, you know, just steady staffing. It's a reflection of how this continues to evolve. I think, um, you know, we aren't out of the woods yet. Uh, There are many individuals that continue to contract COVID-19. I think it's incredibly important that we all remain vigilant in doing what we can to protect one another so that we can see the light at the end of the tunnel informally. I mean, we've, you know, resumed a lot of in-person activities, but um, I think to really truly have uh, this moment of putting it, you know, in the rearview mirror, requires each of us to be able to, um, you know, ensure greater public health by uh, making sure that everyone is getting their vaccine, is is maintaining the proper protocols and hygiene, so that we can actually eliminate uh, COVID indefinitely. And 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 I don't know that uh, we'll ever get there, uh, but we could certainly minimize its continued impact uh, so that it's not as pervasive as it has been.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The unhoused have been uh, a challenge, a topic. I'm trying to say the right words for Los Angeles, for Southern California, for all of California. And I'm, and I do believe it's, it's really a, a nationwide challenge. And the problem is not just Uh, California or Los Angeles, and there's no magic wand. And uh, a lot of uh, homelessness is due to many other factors, such as disintegration of middle class. Uh, It's, um, uh, you know, just uh, inequity in our society. And the fact that, you know, a lot of people live in California, one out of eight Americans live in California, and the lion's share of the unhoused live in greater LA. But of course, a lot of, lot of our residents think council members can just sort of, you know, just have a magic wand and it'll just go away. But you have actually done a great deal and you have uh, championed uh, many different initiatives um, to do what you can, you know, with everything that you and other um, elected officials are beset with. And one of them was creating the good neighbor policy, um, which has to do with standardized safety. Uh, and protocols at homeless shelters. Um, Would you uh, elaborate on that?
1: Yes. Well, I, and thank you for recognizing what a complicated uh, issue it is because it isn't, you know, the individuals uh, experiencing homelessness have a wide variety of uh, reasons why they've uh, found themselves living unhoused. Uh, You have Uh, a large uh, youth population that is unhoused that are part of the emancipated youth of our foster care system. You have individuals that have both uh, chronic mental health or substance abuse issues. You have families, as in my district, many families. I have the largest population of students that are unhoused, uh, whose families are unhoused at one of my grammar schools here in my district. So it's a very uh, it's a very diverse set of circumstances that have affected individuals and put them uh, into homelessness. That being said, uh, one of the reasons I ran for office and wanted to be part of the solutions and shifts in our city uh, was because, while it's incredibly important for us to continue to Um, say yes to the housing and the facilities where so often people resisted. I used to run an affordable housing trust fund in the state, and people have very um, negative perceptions about what that means in their neighborhoods. Uh, The truth of the matter is, is that these don't often, these facilities do not have to be synonymous with having increased crime or tr- problems associated with it and so when i first took office and there was an emergency winter shelter in my district i was protested by young people residents uh, of, you know uh, that were coming out of anger and frustration and concern about the operations of that facility uh, <clears throat> i said to the residents because i had I literally had been in office maybe about 90 days when it had happened and I said to them, look, give me an opportunity to make this right, because we can't keep kicking this can down the road. We have to provide these solutions and we have to assure that when we do so, that it also respects and protects the neighbors. And so we uh, the good neighbor policy was the pilot that essentially created a suite of conditions for operators to say, you will implement these Standard and standardize the operations and practices in these areas so that we may be able to assure residents that these facilities will not be synonymous with problems uh, in their neighborhoods. And so with the good neighbor policy, we standardize a suite of conditions that uh, frankly, eradicated a lot of the problems that were originally associated with that shelter. And that suite of options are available and uh, in application and uh, in all of the facilities across the city. And so it's just trying to help get people to understand that again, you know, the, the problems of what we see on our streets is we have to work through and develop the, po- the probable solutions, but to bring everybody involved along. And I will say that the operator initially resisted some of the proposals that uh, we suggested as part of this good neighbor policy, but clearly it has resulted in a, a meaningful difference because when uh, it was funny, I remember going having a follow up community meeting and talking about the facility where people had again, it had notoriously been very well known about how. Uh, problem problematic the operations were previously and uh, when the residents said oh my god do me a favor don't open that and I said well by the way it's been operating now for three months and you didn't even realize because we shifted how they operated and how they respected the community and that made a world of difference.
0: Yeah you can't always make everyone happy all of the time but it seems like you're trying to like as you said bring everyone with you so that it, it, Because we have this tendency as human beings to um, want to have our cakes and eat it too. It's like, take care of the unhoused. I don't want the homeless, but yet I don't want it near me either. Um, And the stigma and all of that sort of baggage that comes with it. Where do we really draw that balance this is the blunt post with vic on kpfk 90.7 fm i'm your host Vic army and you are listening to my interview with los angeles council member monica rodriguez and another element that you address which is sort of part of this big puzzle this complicated puzzle as you said is is safe parking program um which really addresses a whole other sort of part of this um this, this this huge challenge for the city. If you want to talk a little bit about that,
1: yeah. Well, I actually piloted the first safe parking that accommodated RVs as well. Uh, there's not a single neighborhood throughout the city where you're not identifying uh, the problems that we have with oversized vehicles. And uh, these safe parking facilities, you know, when you marry them with services, there are places you can open up a parking lot and say that this is okay for individuals to park overnight without being disturbed. Uh, But that is insufficient to actually helping to facilitate and connect people to the resources that will, in fact, get them off the street. And so co-locating the safe parking with a service provider in my district in North Hills uh, really marked a huge shift in getting a number of individuals that have been living in their vehicles for, in some cases, years, uh, connected to resources that, in fact, help them uh, get into housing and then, frankly, being employed. Uh, there were certain individuals that had been obviously it's it's a it's a slippery slope once you become unhoused. How do you maintain a source of employment? How do you if you don't have access to facilities that enabled you to present yourself in a uh, in a you know in a presentable way? And uh, it really made a difference in the lives of individuals. But adding the RVs, we, you know, we discovered the the challenges and the benefits of doing so because depending on the conditions of the RVs, it made it very difficult for us to be able to uh, maintain the operations. Uh, But uh, again, we're continuing to try and avail new efforts and innovate ways that we're going to help connect people directly to those resources and not kick them from neighborhood to neighborhood because it's important that we remain consistent in approaching these individuals and getting them uh, resourced. And Because again, everyone can be at a different uh, circumstance. They could merely need, uh, you know, uh, a voucher or interim supplemental assistance to help close the financial gaps of whatever they need to pay for rent. Uh, Everybody is at a different level. And so it's just helping to encourage people to uh, marry themselves to the opportunity to have those services and be connected to it so that we can help get them out of homelessness.
0: Absolutely. We've talked about uh, the homelessness um, challenge. How about You know, this is an election year, and as I said, we're sort of in this transitional period in our nation, in L.A., sort of two years of really going through it, if you will. Um, Aside from the the on-house, what are some of the other challenges that that are facing you in District 7 specifically? (laughs)
1: Well, public safety remains a, a huge uh, issue, and at the forefront of many Angelinos, my district included. Uh, and it's incredibly important that we continue uh, to marry ourselves to funding and identifying the right resources to the to the problem. So, for example, with individuals that are experiencing mental health breaks on our streets, it's important that we don't respond necessarily with police or, or fire response uh, to address a circumstance that they're not trained to do. And so what I've done, and we're gonna continue to have pressure for fire and police personnel to continue to do their jobs. We're, you know, we're in an environmental crisis and we're in a public safety crisis. And so it's important to make sure that those, those precious resources are continued to be focused on the issues that they are most best trained to do. Uh, So I led the creation uh, working with Mayor Garcetti to have uh, county mental health professionals located at five fire stations across the city that will respond to mental health cases uh, in lieu of uh, having police or fire uh, resources deployed to addressing those issues. It has resulted in the pilot areas where we've launched this, a 70% reduction of the load of calls that fire and or police would often be uh, occupied in responding to. Now, why does that matter? Well, it matters because when you're talking about issues related to public safety and you talk about response times, we are now appropriately aligning our precious resources to a response that gets to the root of what the services, of what people need that are in those distressed moments and allowing our firefighters or police officers, many of whom, Just to give you the context, we get, on an annual basis, upwards of 50,000 calls associated with mental health issues alone. And so making sure that we are better allocating our resources to avail the services that are going to actually directly respond to the needs of the individuals in crisis enables both our fire and police personnel, both of whom are very precious uh, in terms of, you know, precious and expensive. When public safety and the budget for public safety uh, occupies more than two thirds of our city's budget, uh, we have to again better align our resources in a manner that both that avails and frees up their time to do the jobs that they were best trained to do. And so, uh, doing this and, and providing this type of alternative response is critical to enable these fire and police personnel to respond to the crises that they need to do, whether it's obviously the growing uh, threat of wildfires or it's, um, you know, the circumstances with crime on our streets. And so those are the types of efforts that I think are really important for us to continue to look at as a, as uh, employment alternatives, because it's getting to the root of what the problems are and not just deploying additional, uh, you know, everyone thinks that they can call 911 for all of, you know, as it's not the panacea to have police and fire respond to everything. Right. So we need to make sure that we're better uh, aligning these precious resources in a manner that actually gets us the results that we're yeah. seeing.
0: And, and having mental health professionals, it, it also um, reduces the number of people who are needlessly in jails and prisons when all they need is actual mental health, whether it be a psychiatrist or a therapist or whatever, maybe that PTSD, um, you know, we still have a long way to go in our society, I think in the world, actually, to uh, reduce right. uh, stigma around mental health and uh, sort of see it in a black and white a type of a way. This is the Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I'm your host, Vic Rummy, and you are listening to my interview with Los Angeles Councilmember Monica Rodriguez. So I'll put you on the spot for a second. Uh, you're, this is an election year, and your opponent, mm-hmm. you know, you have an opponent, as everyone does. What makes you different from your opponent uh, as we stand today? Uh, obviously, aside uh, from the fact that you have... Great deal of experience behind you in City Hall.
1: Well, a great deal of experience and uh, and history over 20 years of both public and private sector experience and a record of results. Uh, you know, I often say that it's real easy to point out the problems. It's a lot more difficult to solve them and have the experience of knowing how to solve them. And so, uh, you know, it's very commonplace to have individuals that just want to point out all the shortcomings of of what has occurred, uh, notwithstanding that these individuals have nothing to cite uh, in their own experience of how they've uh, demonstrated their ability to actually lead change, uh, particularly when they've had an opportunity to do so. But uh, I focus on on my work and my body of work over the course of uh, twenty. Plus years, and uh, frankly, it has been one that it's what earned me uh, so many uh, endorsements. Because like, you know, it's it's real easy for people to malign. Oh well, you know, it's uh, this machine or it's corruption uh, without facts. It's just something that sadly a lot of people uh, gravitate to in absence of having any substantive uh, example. Of any of the work that you know to show for any body of work that they've ever been involved with, they you know so uh, I'm in that circumstance, and uh, I know some of my colleagues are as well. And you know, it's the nature of what happens. It's uh, it's the nature of of uh, individuals that want to uh, malign other people and uh, as uh, as as a means of distracting uh, the public from being held accountable or being able to speak to any. Uh, any actual deliverable that they've ever been involved in. So uh, I just focus on doing my work and I continue to show the results. And, uh, you know, in four years time, I've been, uh, you know, responding to crises after crises and a global pandemic. And so it's real easy for people to be Monday morning quarterbacking about how how or you know, woulda, shoulda, coulda. And the truth is, is what we need is better collaborations Uh, between individuals that uh, purport that they want to help advance and move our communities forward so that we can actually do so.
0: Absolutely. What question, uh, I have two more questions for you, and the first one is this, what questions should I have asked you that I missed or anything you'd like to add?
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, I think... um, You know, what I'd like to say is that it's been uh, for me, it's been an incredible privilege of my life to serve in this role. And even in spite of all the challenges of of what these times have presented, I think it's been uh, I mean, these are just remarkable times and it tests us in ways of being creative. Uh, But, you know, I I, I'm just so grateful we have uh, such a committed group of public servants in the city that have really turned themselves inside out to be first responders. And I'm not just talking about police and fire. I'm talking about every city employee that figured out how to adapt and change to this just incredibly uncertain environment, uh, not just to continue to sustain their workload, but also to be uh, to serve as that uh, interim stopgap for families that desperately needed resources at a time when we were just, uh, again, experiencing, uh, you know, these devastating losses through COVID uh, and then also having to endure their own uh, impacts with COVID. You know, people are often desensitized to uh, what, you know, uh, what these individuals have done. And yes, they have some signed up to be public servants, uh, but it has been very trying and exhausting on them as well. And so I'm just grateful to be in a position to work with a group of professionals that, care so much and so deeply about residents of the city that we're trying to work every single day to figure out a way uh, to do better, uh, to do right by them and to make sure that we don't miss a beat in, uh, in serving uh, all the needs in the pe- for the people of Los Angeles.
0: Absolutely. I, I'm, I dare to say I'm friends with a couple of council members and I know that it's an exhausting thankless job. A lot of times, I mean, their schedules just make me give me like, I just can't believe all that they do. You know, seven days a week. Uh, it's uh, I do admire you, and I want to. I, I also want to say, as an Armenian American, thank you for your support. Uh, LA City Council has been, um, uh, you know, a pillar in the back of the Armenian community. As you know, not only this Armenian genocide recognition, but unfortunately, our people went through it again in 2020 with the attack on Artsakh when the world watched mm-hmm. in a deafening silence, uh, L.A. City Hall had a press conference, L.A. City Hall issued declarations. I know it was unanimous. I know you were supportive of that. I know you have a lot of Armenian Americans in your district, especially Tahanga So I want to thank you. I know all. I know I'm not going to lie. I don't know all that you have to deal with. <laughs> I have an idea <laughs> I have an idea, and I'm and I'm very grateful. Um, Before we go, uh, Council Member, how can people reach you, get involved, contribute? uh, If you can give us your website or just other ways people can uh, reach out to you.
1: Sure. Well, my website is uh, www.monicaforcitycouncil.com, and uh, they could certainly email at monica at monicaforcitycouncil.com as well. Uh, But if they go to the website, they should be able to uh, get all the information and details on how to get involved. You know, civic duty is everyone's responsibility. And we want to remind everyone that even just a basic fundamental uh, opportunity that you have is just to make sure that you vote. And uh, with respect to, you know, the the atrocities and the aggressions in Artsakh uh, and uh, and my support of uh, really helping to give proper recognition and respect to the generations of Armenians that have had to endure uh, the loss uh, and that history of loss uh, of, their, of, of their people. It's really been an honor for me to be an ally and, uh, and a champion on these issues along with so many of my colleagues. Uh, because injustice, injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere. And our communities have mutual, mutually experienced uh, the same levels of disrespect. And uh, for me, it, it's just no question uh, that I would continue to be aligned with uh, the Armenian people on these issues because it's, it's not far different from the experiences that uh, Latino Americans have experienced here. Uh, in terms of just the, uh, the, lev- the level of dignity and respect that has been denied so often by just an acknowledgement and recognition of the experience. And so I think for that, I'm, uh, I'm really grateful to, uh, to have the opportunity to be in a position where I can help raise voice and, and raise attention to, um, to, this, uh, to this critical issue.
0: I appreciate that. You're right. There's a lot of intersectionality, shared trauma, with a lot of us minorities, it's uh, you know discrimination, marginalization, the inequity. Um, so yes, thank you for that. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate your time. Uh, good luck to you, although I don't think you need it. And uh, if one more time, you can give us your, uh, your web address, your URL. appreciate it.
1: Sure. It's wwwmonica 4
0: Fantastic. Thank you, uh, Councilmember, for being on the Blunt Post with Vic this morning. That was my interview with uh, Councilmember Monica Rodriguez uh, from North and Northeast and Central San Fernando Valley, uh, who is up for re-election, as are many other uh, members of the L.A. City Council. Uh, Thank you, Councilmember, for being on the show this morning. I appreciate your time, and I hope to chat with you again soon. (laughs) Before we go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, without whom this show would not be possible, and KPFK, the station that brings you unfiltered and commercial-free news, opinion, and hopefully some inspiration. Thank you for joining me today on The Blunt Post with Vic. Tune in next Monday at 6 a.m. for another episode. For more information, please visit thebluntpost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter, at Vic at v-i-c-g-e-r-a-m-i thank you the blunt post with vic